Uh, good evening, everyone. And thank you, Sally, so much. So many of the words that we've been actually singing uh, are going to crop up in what we're going to look at this evening. If you have a Bible or you want to turn to one of the, the Red Pew Bibles, to Hebrews chapter 8. It's page 1206 in those Red Pew Bibles. Uh, it's been four weeks for those uh, who have been following the series, it's been four weeks since we last looked at Hebrews. And in, uh, in the chapter we read a month ago, chapter seven, we came across a, a Bible character who doesn't tend to feature or quickly come to mind, we said, in the game of who's who of Scripture. And yet it turns out that this character who features in Hebrews chapter 7 is really, really important. In fact, based on something that we read in Hebrews 7, this character is greater than Abraham. And we said if you were playing a game of Bible top trumps, and there is such a game, his card would almost be the best one you could have and could play. Uh, who was, what was his name? Melchizedek, yeah. Melchizedek, who according to Genesis 14 was a priest and a king. And he's the only other person in the Bible apart from Jesus to have those both roles and to be identified as both a priest and a king. And he is a fascinating uh, character. He's, he's mysterious in many ways, but he is definitely fascinating. Although the main reason, and we emphasize this, the main reason that the writer of Hebrews takes time, and he takes a fair amount of time more than any other biblical writer to talk about this guy, the reason he does that is in order that people, his readers, his first readers and all subsequent readers, would have a greater and a better understanding of Jesus, because as we've been stressing all along, the writer of Hebrews' primary focus is to elevate Jesus. Right from the word go, he says, I want you to consider Jesus. This is the aim of why I write to you. Later on, near the end, he says, I want you to fix your eyes on Jesus. It is all about Jesus. And so in, in chapter 7, as he writes about this puzzling yet vital Old Testament character, he draws sharp attention to Jesus. And by the end of that chapter, if you were here four weeks ago, we highlighted 13 things about Jesus. Now, I was going to invite us to try to name the 13 things, but I realized and recognized in the way you're smiling at me, there isn't a chance anybody remembers one. Never mind 13, because that was a month ago. So 13 facts about Jesus that we found in Hebrews 13. Here they are. This is what he said about Jesus. Jesus is a king. Jesus is a priest forever. Jesus is the king of righteousness. Jesus is a king of peace. Jesus is a better hope. Jesus draws us near to God. Jesus is holy. Jesus is blameless. Jesus is pure. Jesus is set apart. Jesus is exalted above the heavens. Jesus is our once and for all sacrifice. And Jesus always lives, something we've been singing in at least two of the songs tonight, Jesus always lives to intercede. Elevated Jesus. Consider Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And so just take a moment, just take a moment to just quietly and prayerfully read through those 13 truths about who Jesus is. Okay, let's go on to chapter eight, where many of these actually facts and truths are reaffirmed. 
plus as we get into chapter eight, there, there's so much more to contemplate. But as the chapter begins, uh, not necessarily in the kind of way the NIV is captured in the, in the Red Pew Bibles, but in many other versions, as the chapter begins, the writer comes out with a really interesting phrase. Look at verse one, because this is what he says in verse one of chapter eight. Now, the main point of what we are saying is this, and that, that's one of those phrases, I think in, the, in the, the Pew Bibles it says, the point of what we are saying is this, and that's one of those phrases where you think, good. Because if you've been reading through Hebrews, you, you could almost say, I, I could do with this, because a lot of what he's been saying, and a lot of Hebrews is complicated at times. And it is hard to follow, especially for us, given the distance there is in time and culture and background between us and between the first recipients of this letter, those from a Jewish background who readily identified with so many of the things that the writer of Hebrews has been talking about and goes on to talk about, whereas for us, it's harder to relate to these things. And so he says, now, the main point of what we are saying is this, and so you kind of breathe a sigh of relief and go, great, I'm, I'm really glad you're gonna kind of you know, narrow it down, simplify it for us. On week one of this series, which was actually back in February, so well done for anybody who's stuck with us. But that was when we started Hebrews back in February. And I, I made this point and I quoted a number of writers. I said, Hebrews is one of the most bracing and challenging writings in the entire New Testament. And no New Testament book has had more background research than Hebrews and none has spawned a greater diversity of opinion. And I also said in that very first week that Hebrews is not for the theologically faint-hearted. And actually during the week, I, I bumped into a friend, uh, someone I went to school with, who is actually doing a dissertation on the Puritan John Owen, whatever you're into. But anyway, John Owen has written a commentary. Some of you will know this. He wrote a commentary on Hebrews that runs for seven volumes. There is something like 4,000 pages he has written on Hebrews, over 2 million words. Hebrews is a complicated book. It is a tough book. And so when you come to a phrase in chapter 8, now the main point of what I'm saying is you kind of go, right, great. <laughs> what is it? Well, let's hear it. And as we always do, let's stand for the public reading of God's word. So we're going to read the first 13 verses, in fact, the only 13 verses in the chapter. Now, the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary. This is a copy and a shadow of what it is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build a tabernacle, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown to you in the mountain. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, the days are coming, declares the Lord, 
when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declared the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbors to say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Grab a seat. Still complicated. So the question is, what's the main point? What is the main point? We have such a high priest. We have Jesus. He's exactly what we need. He is all we need. He is the high priest extraordinaire. He is an outstanding high priest. He is the one, going back to last week or four weeks ago in Hebrews, he is the one who is able to save, the writer says, completely. Or in another version, he is the one who is able to save to the end. He is the one, again, quoting the previous chapter, he is the one who can truly meet your need. And he is the one who has sacrificed himself for our sins once for all. We do not need, this is the main point he's saying, we do not need anyone else to get right with God. We just need Jesus to be forgiven, to be rescued, to live the life we were meant to live. We have such a high priest who is superior and is sufficient. And if we can just keep the main thing, the main thing, which is Jesus, then we will not drift back to a previous life or way of living. We won't pack it in because this was the risk that many of the first readers of Hebrews faced. They were being tempted to walk away from their newfound Christian faith. And the writer says, listen, we have such a, you have all you need in Jesus. For these Jewish Christians, priests and high priests especially, they were key figures. And the reason they were so important is because they were the people's route to God. They were the mediators. They were the go-betweens between them and God. But the writer is making the point, the main point, the key point, that Jesus is now their great high priest and he kind of trumps them all. He's now all they need. They don't need anybody else. Don't need any other earthly priest. Don't even need a high priest. You've got Jesus now, who is your high priest in the order of Melchizedek, as he's been saying. And as he writes on, he further explains how is Jesus greater? How is Jesus the greatest? How is he a superior high priest? Plus, he goes on to spell out how, and this would have been a really big thing for these readers. As I say, for us sometimes we miss just how powerful this would have been for them to hear this. But he goes on to spell out how Jesus mediates a new and a better covenant. Now, up to now, he hasn't mentioned this in Hebrews, but he does here. And this would have shaken his readers to the core, in a sense. In the first seven chapters, yes, he, he's been repeatedly saying that Jesus is greater than a whole pile of other things and people. 
that were all really important to the Jewish people. So for example, right at the very start, in the very first verse of the very first chapter, he says, listen, Jesus is greater than the prophets. Do you remember what he said? In the past, God spoke to us through, to our ancestors, through the prophets and at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us through Jesus because Jesus speaks a better word. Jesus trumps the prophets. And then he goes on to say, Jesus is greater than the angels. And then he goes on to say, Jesus is greater than Moses. And he goes on to say, Jesus is greater than Aaron and Jesus is greater than Melchizedek. He's greater than any earthly priest. And now, the writer refers to something that lay right at the center of the Jewish religion. He says, the covenant, your covenant relationship with God. And many of the Jews would have taken pride in that covenant. They found comfort and they drew strength from it. But as the Hebrews writer continues to direct the spotlight in Jesus, he comes out with this dramatic, and again, we, we don't feel the full force of it, but this was such, would have been such a dramatic statement for them to read the first time around, a life-altering, religion-altering statement where it says, but in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to all theirs, that's all the priests, as the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one. What? Superior to the old covenant. Since the new covenant is, is established on better promises, that, that would have hit home. That would have raised eyebrows. That would have caused a reaction. And so the writer goes on to explain why and how, plus referencing back to an Old Testament prophet, because he quotes Jeremiah, he defines what the better promises are now because of Jesus. But before we look at what those better promises are and what is key about this new covenant, look at why Jesus is a greater high priest from verses one and two, because it's all about location, location, location. Jesus, he says, why is he a greater high priest? What is the reason for it? Because Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty with a capital M, so it's a title for God, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God in heaven. He is exalted. The king is exalted. The priest is exalted on high, and I will praise him. Every other priest was earthbound. Every other priest was time and space limited, but not Jesus. He came to earth. He humbled himself. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. He became that once and for all sacrifice for our sins. But now he is risen and he is exalted. And he is seated forever at the right hand of God. And as Paul then reminds us later on, he's been exalted to the highest place and he's been given this name that is above every other name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee is gonna bow. He is supremely exalted. He occupies a supremely exalted position and location, and therefore he is the greatest. Therefore he is greater. Therefore he is the ultimate high priest. He is all you need. He's everything you need. And what is he doing now? What is he doing right now? We've been singing about it. We looked at this four weeks ago. What does Jesus live for now? He always lives to intercede for us. I've been trying to kind of reflect on that more and more over the past month. That as we sit here this evening, what Jesus lives for now 
is to intercede, to advocate for you and me before the Father. What a thought. What a kind of comfort, what a hope. That is why he's such a superior, greater high priest. That's why Jesus is all you need. As he's seated, he's exalted. And he's interceding for you. And whatever you're going through, whatever temptations you're facing, whatever difficulties you're dealing with at the minute, Jesus is interceding for you. That's what he lives for, always lives for now. I'm gonna go back to the the new covenant then. Because there were two key aspects to it according to that verse six. Jesus is the mediator of this new covenant. In other words, Jesus is at the heart of it. Jesus now is the one, no longer do you need these earthly priests or high Jesus is now the one who brings the two parties that are separated and effectively at loggerheads back together. Sin has separated mankind from God. Somebody needs to act as a go-between. Somebody needs to mediate on behalf of people before God. Somebody needs to bring God to the people. And Jesus is that someone. He is our high priest who has sacrificed, not just sacrifices for his sins or for anybody's sins, but it actually says, as we've been thinking about, he sacrificed himself. And therefore, it's Jesus that restores the relationship. He is the mediator of this new covenant. That is what is so different about it. He restores the friendship. He repairs the disconnection. This morning, as we celebrated communion, and we always read these words, and Vic, Vic, who was leading our service this morning, who led communion, read these words, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, well, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. He is the one who mediates this new covenant because of his sacrifice, his once and for all sacrifice, and therefore he says, see, whenever you drink that cup, Do it in remembrance of the fact that I am the mediator, I'm the go-between between God and man. I'm the one that restores your relationship. So that's a key thing about this new covenant. Jesus is its mediator. The second thing, and it just follows, is that it's miles better than the old one. That's what verse says, doesn't it? It is superior to the old one. And then if you look at verse seven, I don't have it on the screen, but look at verse seven. It's pretty obvious something was wrong, it would seem, with the old one. And people were seeking something else. Now, it's interesting what verse 8 says because it becomes obvious that the old covenant wasn't so much the problem. It was the people who were the problem. Look what it says. But God found fault with the people. It doesn't say God found fault with the covenant. God found fault with the people. And then if you look down at verse 9, it says, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. It wasn't a covenant. It was a problem. It's the people were. And if you look at verse 9 as well, it says, God had led the people by the hand. God had led them out of Egypt, out of captivity, out of slavery. He had led them by the hand. But they didn't want it. They didn't want it long term. They liked the idea of being set free from slavery in the short term, but they didn't want it long term. And so it wasn't very long before the people started rebelling. People started doing their own thing, going their own way. They kept chasing after other gods, foreign gods. They kept worshiping other idols. They kept compromising their worship. They kept being faith, unfaithful to the covenant relationship that God had established with them. 
So it was a problem. And so God comes along and he promises, and he did this via the prophet Jeremiah. And the writer of Hebrews just quotes Jeremiah in verses 8 and 9. And this comes, and many of you will know this, from Jeremiah chapter 31. And this is what it says. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant. So this was predicted years in advance. But I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors. So a new covenant was always planned. It was always on the cards. And it was going to be better and it was going to be superior, partly because it was based on better promises. So what were they? What was so much better about it? What was it about this new covenant that made all the difference? Yes, Jesus was its mediator and it was superior to them, but what were the better promises? Well, there were at least three I just want to pick out. And the first is this. It's going to be internal rather than external. God was going to put, it's just reading it straight, God was going to put his laws in our minds and write them in our hearts. This new covenant was going to change us from the inside out. This new covenant was going to impact wills and hearts. The previous covenant was written in all kinds of external places on stone tablets, but the new one would be written within. So it's going to be miles better. And that's because Jesus gets to the heart of the matter, which is the matter of the heart. Yay. Got it in again. And therein he dwells by his, but that is what is so radically different about this new covenant. It's internal. It's not the set of external laws that you've got to observe and keep, and you never will keep, and they never did keep. This is something from within. Ezekiel writing about this as well said, and I will put my spirit in you so that you will obey my laws and do whatever I command. You, you can't but I'm going to write my laws on your heart. This is going to change you from the inside out. And how does it do that? Because of Jesus, your great high priest, who's all you need and everything you need. And when he left, he sent his Holy Spirit so that he could live in you by his Spirit and enable you to live according to God's ways, to live according to the commands of God. This is a new day. This is a new covenant, a new agreement from the inside out. So it's internal rather than external. Second promise, it's centered on relationship. Verse 10, I will be their God and they will be my people. But that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Those of you who know the wording of the old covenant will know that was exactly what God said about the old covenant back in Leviticus 26. I'll be your God, you will be my people. But the thing is, now that they were being changed from the inside out, they were in a far better place to know God for themselves. Like as he goes on to say in Hebrews 8 here, to really know God from the least to the greatest now can know God. Why? Because Jesus is the one that brings us together to God. So you can really know God now in an intimate way, because Jesus, whenever he sacrificed his life, whenever he created it is finished, what happens? The curtain in the temple is ripped in two, signifying that the entrance into the Holy of Holies, the entrance in to intimacy with God is now open. You don't need an earthly high priest to go in there on your behalf. 
you can now walk in with confidence and with boldness to the very presence of Almighty God. I will be your God, and you will be my people. You will be my children. You will be my sons and daughters. That was new. Now they can really know God as their father who loves them, as their shepherd who leads and protects them, as their savior who delivers them, as their power who lifts them, as their wisdom who guides them, as their friend who's closer than a brother, their refuge, their strength, their ever-present help in times of trouble, their comfort. They can really, really know that God because of this new covenant centered on relationship made possible because of Jesus. And thirdly, it's based on forgiveness. Look at verse 12. And I'll forgive their wickedness. And I will never again remember their sins. I will never again remember their sins. The old covenant couldn't take sin away long term. And so the people via priests had to keep coming back keep coming back and offering blood sacrifices time and time again in order to be forgiven all over again, temporarily forgiven. But now because of Jesus, because of his once and for all blood sacrifice of himself for our sins, you can be forgiven as in totally forgiven, completely forgiven, eternally forgiven. And God says, you know something? Because of Jesus, because of this new covenant that he has mediated, because he has brought you and God back together again, I will forgive your wickedness and I will remember your sins no more. And so whenever you confess your sins, he's faithful and he's just and he forgives us of our sins and he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. This new covenant is based on forgiveness. And it doesn't mean we will never sin again as we keep saying, but it does mean that as we look to Jesus and as we depend on Jesus and as we remember Jesus week after week around his table as he instructed us to do, we can go on knowing the forgiveness of God and the reality of a restored relationship with our almighty heavenly father. And so in summary, what is this new covenant? It is mediated by Jesus. It is far superior to the old one, which people kept messing up. And the reason that it's better is because it's based on better promises. And so it's going to be internal rather than external. It's going to be centered on relationship. You can really know God. And it's based on forgiveness. And the biggest and best reason for all of that is Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And so it's in Jesus that all the new covenant promises belong to us. And so we are forgiven because of Jesus. We're in relationship because of Jesus. We can have new hearts because of Jesus. And so it goes on and it goes on. And that's why the writer at the start of this epistle says, listen, I want you to consider Jesus. At the end of the epistle, he says, I want you to fix your eyes on Jesus because it's all about him. And so he has mediated this new covenant. So the main point, we have such a high priest, an exalted high priest who has done it all and more. And so we thank God for Jesus.